Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Dear Father, our hearts long to move from sinfulness to righteousness. We know that we are made righteous by Jesus, but we also know that in the economy of your kingdom, we will reap what we sow, emotionally and spiritually. Please help us to sow good things generously. Use us to sow what pleases the Holy Spirit and not ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Valerie. Good morning. My name is Steve-O, and uh, I know we just prayed, but uh, this is for my sake, uh, not because I'm so spiritual, uh, but because I need it. Uh, I'm going to ask if uh, we can just take a moment. I would invite you guys to pray for me, and I'll take this time to pray for you, and uh, let's ask God for help for this time. Heavenly Father, we ask for your Spirit to give us the faith to see, to respond, to understand, and that our hearts would leap at your Word, and the Gospel might transform us. Lord, this is not something that I can do up here uh, with my words or my thoughts. This is something that only the Holy Spirit you can do, so we ask for that gift. We ask for the faith to respond, and we ask that you would be beautiful, that we can't help, and we want to kneel at your feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chris, first of all, thanks for giving me this opportunity and our friendship, and uh, Jamie, uh, I hope I, I don't let you guys down. <laughs> It has been reported that during the height of the pandemic, a certain television show was watched for a whopping 57 billion minutes in the U.S. alone. You heard that correctly, 57 billion minutes, more than any other TV show. Any guesses as to the name of the show? Anyone know? Love Island. The answer is The Office. The Office. 
Kendra and I account for some of those minutes because we watched all nine seasons around that time. Now, if you're a fan of The Office, then you know that the best character of the show is Michael Scott. Michael Scott. Michael Scott is a particular kind of manager of this uniquely run paper company. In documentary style, he's in an interview about his management style and the sort of relationship he prefers to have with his staff. He asks himself the question, would I rather be feared or loved? Would I rather be feared or loved? And in true Michael Scott fashion, he has an easy answer. He says, that's easy. Both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. (laughs) That's cute, silly, ridiculously funny, uh, but I really have no idea what that really means. And if you've seen The Office, then you know that's the beauty of the show. But it brings up a good question that pertains to us. Are we to relate to God out of fear or out of love? This Lenten season, we are looking intently at the crucifixion of Jesus, and we're asking ourselves the question, what exactly happened at the cross? In our passage today, we come to Romans chapter 3, where Paul sheds light on the sort of God that we have and the sort of relationship that he wants. If we are going to know how to relate to God, then we need to know how he has revealed himself. We need to know who he is and what he is like. We need to know his character. So this morning we are going to look at two qualities, two characteristics, two truths about who God is. And as we do so, we're going to see that God is one who is always true to himself. Always. And if you're here today and you're uncomfortable with this thought, and maybe we're even afraid of who God is and what God is like, I'm going to ask that you hang with me. If you walked in here and you're anxious about where you stand with God and you're not quite certain where you stand and how to relate to God, I'm going to ask that you hang with me because at the other end of this, in God's very character, we're going to find that there's freedom safety, life. That's where we're going today. But first, let's look at how God has revealed himself. How has God revealed himself? First, we have a God of justice. We have a God of justice. He is a good God who sets rules for his creation and gives each as is deserved. He always does what is just holy, righteous, and good, always. He rewards the righteous, and he punishes the wicked. And when we hear this, we might already be tensing up. In our modern Western culture, we prefer, in Oprah's words, the the non-judgmental God stuff. The non-judgmental God stuff. We get uncomfortable with someone else telling, telling us what to do, 
someone else setting the rules, someone else giving the law, and someone else enforcing it. And I think it's natural for us to be uncomfortable because we prefer to march to the beat of our own drum. Sheryl Crow had a song years ago, and the chorus goes like this. If it makes you happy, it can't be all that bad. If it makes you happy, then why are you so sad? In other words, we justify our actions by what we like. The heart wants what it wants, and if it makes us happy, then it's got to be good. We don't like rules imposed on us. We don't like someone else drawing the lines for us. We don't like someone else telling us what we can and can't do, what we, uh, where we can and can't go. The problem, however, is that when it comes to righteousness, the human race is sick. Human history has demonstrated time and time again that we can no longer count on our faculties. We do not gravitate towards righteousness. Our moral compass has gone amiss. The Apostle Paul has spent nearly the first two and a half chapters in the book of Romans articulating this very thing. We have a natural allergy to God. We prefer to do our own thing. And what God calls good, right, and true does not always seem to align with what we call good, right, and true. And this misalignment is what the Bible calls sin. We, are, we were created to be in agreement with God, to see everything eye to eye, but we have gone off course. We're off trajectory. We're in disagreement. God is the righteous one, and we have a righteousness deficit. Our disagreement with God leaves us in a dilemma, in an uncomfortable predicament. Why? Because on one hand, we need a God who is just. We want and need a righteous judge who is fair, who rightfully gives what is deserved. We do not like it when someone gets away with something that they absolutely should not be getting away with. Just a little over a year ago, my family and I were victims of a drunk driver rear-ending us on the highway. The car was totaled, and we rode an ambulance to the hospital. We piled up a bunch of hospital bills, chiropractor bills, payments for a new car. As you can imagine, it was pretty traumatic for the family. And worst off, it was on Christmas Eve Eve, December 23rd. We later found out in the police report that the girl who hit us was both intoxicated and on drugs. I remember getting into the ambulance yelling at her, you almost killed us! What were you thinking? I was enraged, and my, cry, my heart cried out, for what? For justice. For justice. I wanted that person to pay for what she had done, or at the very least, lose her license, something. Not sure exactly what, but I knew I wanted justice. I wanted for things to be fair. When there's a perpetrator who wronged us, we want him caught. We want him locked up. 
We want justice. And we have this longing for justice because justice demands that someone has to pay. We want and need a God of justice. We want a God who cares enough to set boundaries and to enforce good rules. We need a righteous judge, a holy God, a good God, a fair God. We do not want a chaotic world where there is no justice, where things are not fair, and where God turns a blind eye. God is called the righteous one. He is a just God. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He says, I will never let the guilty go unpunished. In the gospel, we have a God who cares. You're angry at injustice? Christianity says God is too. God too gets angry at injustice. The Bible calls this anger at injustice his wrath. Perhaps the notion of God's wrath and his anger have turned you off to Christianity and it left a bad taste in your mouth. However, let's understand what God's wrath is. God's wrath is not an unreliable and reactive emotion like ours. His anger is not like the Greek gods that seem to hold grudges and throw temper tantrums. It's not a bad temper as if God were an irritable parent. His wrath is not a cranky explosion or a vindictive outburst. It's not capricious, fickle, arbitrary. So what is God's wrath? It is his set opposition toward all injustice in his world. It is pure, uncontaminated, controlled. It is free from personal animosity and is fully compatible with his love. His love for us is not diminished by his wrath. I like what N.T. Wright says about this. He says, The the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice... He is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. End quote. God takes sin seriously because he takes humanity seriously. We have a just God, someone who cares enough about his world to set standards and to hold us accountable to them. But as I said, we have this dilemma, this uncomfortable predicament. On one hand, we want and need a God of justice, someone who cares to uphold all that is good, right, and true. But on the other hand, 
This very thing that we need is the very thing we cannot handle. Why? Because we're not always the victims. We're often the perpetrators. We're perpetrators against the created order, against other people, God's very image bearers, and even against ourselves. But in all this, who is the main offended party? It is always God. This is why after David in the Old Testament committed adultery with another man's wife, he later came to realize that his sin was primarily against God himself, against you, and you only have I sinned. Our unrighteousness is always a direct offense against our Creator and the universe's sovereign. It is defiance against the righteous one. We cannot live without justice, but also we cannot live with justice. We need justice for us, but we cannot stand justice against us. God says, vengeance is mine. And we say, yes, he's going to repay for us. And that makes us feel good for about a nanosecond because that very statement also spells our doom. We ourselves are lawbreakers. We too are guilty. We indeed have a righteousness deficit. And this is why when we come to this realization, we prefer Oprah's non-judgmental God stuff. Because we know that this deficit is palpable. We do not measure up, and so we construct a God or God-adjacent who always overlooks our shortcomings. It's easier that way. My friend Michelle at a work party told me that her God loves people no matter what and is not offended by anything we do or say. And you might be here thinking, this is my issue with Christianity. Christians are always talking about sin. Church is always making us feel bad. What is with all this talk about the cross why all this talk about God sacrificing his son and why this need for a blood sacrifice that sounds so primitive, so barbaric? Why does God hold a grudge? Why does he have to hold a grudge against us? Why does he have to make it a big deal and cause all this drama? Why can't he look past our shortcomings and accept us for who we are why can't he just get over it? Why can't he just forgive and forget? The reason God cannot simply overlook sin and get over it because he has to be true to himself. As a just God, he cannot let anybody go scot-free. It would be unjust for him to do so. It would be improper, and it would actually be impossible. It is impossible for God to simply forgive. It goes completely against his character and against who he is. He cannot shut his eyes to sin. He cannot let something slide. He cannot simply utter a word of forgiveness. To do so would involve God in a cheat. And a cheat does not satisfy justice. It does not accomplish righteousness. If God forgave a single sin, 
in the sense of closing his eyes, then we would not live in a moral universe and God would not be just. Francis Schaeffer said, in one sense, God never really forgives anyone's sin. He can't, end quote. Wait, what do you mean he can't? He can't because it is impossible because of who he is. It goes against his just character. We are told in the Old Testament that God is the righteous one. And over and over again, God reveals himself as the one who will never let the guilty go unpunished. God is true to himself. So where does this leave us? We want and need a God of justice. But this also is the very thing that spells our doom. So what hope then is there? What hope do we have? Where can it be found? Where can hope be found? Grit our teeth and try harder? No. If we're going to find any hope, then it cannot be found in anything we ourselves produce. How could it? We have a righteousness deficit. We are consistently inconsistent. Our track record isn't all that pretty, and our promises to turn over a new leaf do very little to alleviate our anxious uncertainty and nervous unclarity. No, hope cannot come from us. If our hope came from within, then I would have no good, for us, good news for us this morning. None. But Christianity is a declaration of good news. And good news, to which Paul points, must be found outside of us. Our hope is found nowhere other than in God's very character. How has God revealed himself? How has God revealed himself? First, we have a God of justice. Second, we have a God who justifies. We have a God who justifies. Paul, after speaking for two and a half chapters about the deserved wrath of God against all evil and injustice, gives us two words that turn the whole script around. Those two words are found in verse 21. But now. Meaning something has happened. Meaning you're supposed to take note of the turn of phrase. The entire human race has a righteousness deficit. None is righteous. No, not one. But now. You're not strong enough. You're not faithful enough. You're not righteous enough. But now. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace 
through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. But He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Paul is saying something radical about how we relate with God, how we relate to Him. In the gospel, God not only requires righteousness, but He is also the one who gives it. At the cross, and only at the cross, God demonstrates that He is both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How is this possible? God did, how did God accomplish this? The unimaginable and unthinkable. Verse 25. Verse 25 of our passage tells us of God's plan to rescue His people and how it finally came in focus. God presented Christ as a propitiation. Our translation says, sacrifice of atonement, which is an okay translation, but it does not do the word justice, no pun intended. God presented Christ as a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a $50 word. It means that God's wrath is no longer aimed towards us because it has already been completely absorbed in Christ. That $50 word, propitiation, carries with it this meaning of pouring out and spending all, which is appropriate, because at the cross, the undiluted wrath of God was poured out so that it cannot be taken back. And it was fully spent Where do we leave off? All right. Were you guys able to hear me in the last few minutes? All right. So something went out. All right. Where was I? All right. Propitiation. The $50 word. How can you forget? All right. God presented Christ as a propitiation. The undiluted wrath of God was poured out so that it cannot be taken back. And it was fully spent so that there was nothing left over. Jesus was clothed in our sins, and he took upon himself the just and righteous wrath of God. All of it was funneled upon his son. Everything, the whole thing, all of it. At the cross of Christ, God put into Jesus' account our unrighteousness so that he put into our account his righteousness. This is why Paul can say in Romans 4 that God is the one 
who justifies the ungodly. How can Paul say this of God, that God justifies the ungodly, when Moses said in, in the Old Testament that God will not justify the ungodly? The only grounds by which Paul can say this is the cross of Christ. That very same Moses, who said God will never let the guilty go unpunished, said in the very same chapter that God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Moses did not fully get how these pieces of the puzzle fit, but he knew that both of these characteristics of God were true. How those two truths about God could be true at the same time in the same person, that was a mystery not yet revealed. But for us, on this side of the cross, we have more clarity than Moses could have dreamed. Is God to be loved or to be feared? Is God a God of love, one who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger? Or is he a just God, a holy God, a righteous God, one who must punish sin? Easy. Both. That's Michael Scott's answer. Is it both? It is both, but that's far from easy. I like the Horatius Benar answer better. Horatius Benar. The reconciliation God has accomplished, and in the accomplishment, both law and love have triumphed. The one has not given way to the other. Each has kept its ground. Never has there been love like this love of God, so large, so lofty, so intense, so self-sacrificing? Never has law been so pure, so broad, so glorious, so inexorable. There has been no compromise. Law and love both have their full scope. The one in all its severity, the other in all its tenderness, there is no compromise. Each has kept its ground. Love has never been more truly love, and law has never been more truly law than at the cross of Christ. End quote. God does not compromise either his wrath or love. He does not cheat his own law. There is no loophole no watering down of his righteous requirements. He does not compromise one for the other. God does not set aside his justice. No, the gospel says that God turns it on himself. This is why the psalmist says, this is why the psalmist says, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. This is why in the prophets God is called righteous God and Savior, the Lord, our righteousness. A puzzle piece here, a puzzle piece there. God's prescription for our righteousness deficit promised long beforehand, but finally delivered 
when at the cross, the wrath of God was poured out, spent, exhausted in his son, Jesus. Do you see why it's insufficient to see what God did for us at the cross merely as a loving sacrifice and moral example? He did, not come, he did not come to break our hearts so that we could see the love of God. He did not come to wipe our slate clean and give us another shot. In Jesus, even Jesus' teachings, his teachings could not deliver us. He did not come to inspire us to show us how it was done. He did not come into the flesh to encourage us to buck up. Find a way to produce so that we could just figure it out. Jesus did not turn a blind eye to sin, but he came to absorb the wrath of God in our place. He did not do away with his just and righteous and holy law, but he came, to, came and he satisfied it completely. God resolved our righteousness deficit by doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. It is impossible for us to produce the righteousness that God requires. You see, the law of God was, that was given to us could never produce righteousness. It was never intended to do so. The law was not given as a checklist to prove us as holy, righteous, and good people. But it was a benchmark to reveal how far we've missed the mark. It demonstrated that we are not good. The law was not given to prove us as righteous, but to prove us as sinners. The law was never meant to deliver us, but to disclose that we cannot deliver ourselves. It was never intended to cleanse us, but to merely clarify what was there. A severe righteousness deficit. Paul says in the passage just prior that with the law comes knowledge of sin. It was never the solution. The law was like a 64K television that shows all our flaws and puts an exclamation on two words. You can't. You can't. But someone else must. And someone else will. Even when the law was given and when the old covenant between God and man was made, it had to be ratified in blood. Why use blood? Why, instead of a natural cleansing agent like water, would you use something so sticky and icky? It's because like the sacrificial system to follow, blood demonstrated to God's people that justice demands payment. However, God's just wrath cannot be satisfied by unwilling animals. That would not be just. That is not a fair exchange. All these animals could do was point. Point us to what God himself would accomplish for us in his son, Jesus, the righteous one. God asked us to look to that man's blood, to that man's cross, to that man's righteousness. Horatius Benar, again, 
If you get a chance to check it out, please do so. This is from his book, The Everlasting Righteousness. It is just delicious stuff. So delicious. Horatius Benar, he says, For that which satisfies the holiness of God cannot but satisfy the conscience of the sinner. God, pointing to the altar, says, That is enough for me. The sinner responds and says, It is enough for me. I just love that. This is how any human of any ethnic origin at any time, any place, comes into relationship with God. It comes freely, by faith, and apart from works, apart from the law. The prescription of our righteousness deficit is not in anything we produce. The righteousness God demands from us is the very righteousness God provides for us. He is just and the one who justifies. God is true to himself, and we rest in what he has accomplished. You know what this means? Do you guys know what this means? It means we are so stinking free. We are so free. We are so free that we do not need to make things so complicated. We do not have to put hurdles up for ourselves or for other people to come to faith. We do not require of anyone anything more than what God requires of them. We are so free that we do not have to wonder where we stand with God. If you're constantly living with anxious uncertainty or nervous unclarity, we can relax and enjoy God. You remember Seinfeld in the episode The Soup Nazi? Where if you did not order the right way, you were denied soup? You could not smile when you ordered? One bowl of lobster bisque. Walk to the side and give a dollar. No soup for you! If truth be told, most of us relate to God like that. No soup for you, one year. You mess up again, no soup, no love for you, two year. No love for you. You really messed up this time. I cannot believe you would do such a thing. No love for you. Is God like that? When we deal with God, do we see him angry with us? During our time of confession... Do we feel this urge and need to muster up the right phrases in the right way as if our acceptability depended on what we bring to the table? We are overinflated about our contribution to the relationship. The gospel says there is no strained relationship between us and God because of what Christ has accomplished through our simple, simple faith. We can relax and enjoy God through faith. So how do we get this faith? Faith requires that we acknowledge that we have a righteousness deficit. 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Perhaps you're here today and you have been given the faith to respond, to believe and that that you have a righteousness deficit, you're willing to own that. 
You can acknowledge that, that to be true where you are right now. You can pray, God, I'm not a good person. I'm not deserving. But faith also requires that you not only accept God's diagnosis of our condition, but that you also embrace his prescription. You can pray where you are right now. God, I put my trust in Jesus, who took my punishment in my place. And if you made that prayer right now, where you're sitting, then that faith to do so, the Bible tells us, is also a gift. We did not bring anything to the table. Zip, zero, zilch, none, nada, anieo. John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. He is faithful to be true to himself and just to forgive our sins. That's good stuff. God is true to himself and we rest in what he has accomplished. I heard a story of a family who was hiking in the woods somewhere in Georgia, and the father saw smoke in the distance. The wind started to pick up, and he could hear the crackling of dry leaves, and he realized that there was a brush fire headed his way, and that something had to be done in order to keep his entire family from being consumed. So he pulled out a match, and he lit the ground on fire. He burned up a dry area around them in the shape of a circle. And he called for his family to get into the circle of the dry area. And the brush fire came quickly. And it came strong. And if you were watching the scene unfold, then you would have been sure that they would all be consumed. But the father had placed his family in the burnt dry area. And when the fire swept over them, they were untouched. The hairs on their head were not singed. Why were they not harmed? Because fire will not pass over where fire has already passed over. God's wrath is like a brush fire, and it must consume all injustice and unrighteousness. But what protects us? It is not merely the love of God. It's the justice of God. It is the justice of God that protects us. God is just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. We cannot, he, he cannot, he absolutely cannot, 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 cannot <laughs> punish us for something that his son Jesus has already been punished for. It would be unjust for God to demand double penalty for the same sin that has already been resolved. His righteousness demands our acceptance. It demands it. And God is faithful to remain true to himself, and he is just to forgive our sins. God's character demands our forgiveness. In Christ, God became unrighteous for our sake, he became sin in our place so that through our simple, simple faith in what he has accomplished, we might become the righteousness of God 
Me? Me? The righteousness of God? Now that, now that's faith. Let them accuse us of a horde of things, all which may be true and more, but nothing can touch this. In the words of Martin Luther, human reason has the law for its object thinking. I have done this, I have done that, but faith in itself has no object but Jesus Christ, the Son of God given up to death for the sins of the whole world. It does not say, what have I done? And what have I offended? What have I deserved? It says, what has Christ done? What has he deserved? Let's pray. And then, Father, I thank you for letting me get through that, even with the mic issue. Uh, and uh, whether I messed up, I, I mean, in a, in a sense, I don't really care. Because, Lord, you delight in me and... I'm the righteousness of God. I don't really yet fully know what that means, but I know that's good news. And I pray for anyone here who is wondering if that's for them, if that is the truth that you're calling them to, we ask that you would give them the faith to take the next step to come to faith. For those of us here wondering where we stand with you, I pray that, Lord, you would give us good news, that you would preach it to our hearts. Holy Spirit, only you can do so. Give us that gift for us to respond. We're about to enter into another song of worship. We, del we want to delight in you, uh, rest in you. Give us that good news into our hearts, even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.